Uh, we're, this is Brera part two. Uh, and as has been requested, I'm going to, I'm going to time share to end, uh, after at about 50 minutes and then open it up for questions, because in the first year that we did last week, we explored just the basic sugya of Brayras and the definition of Brayra, worked our way through the Mishnah, saw the very curious addition to the Yerushalmi and Shkalim and identified that it really very likely wasn't. Today, we're going to see, solve that mystery a little bit more securely. Uh, but we didn't really get into the concept of Brera, and that's what I'd like to do today. And briefly, just as an introduction, what the entire dive idea is, is really twofold. One is to practice and to strengthen the methodology of reading Gemara. You know, when we do Daf Yomi, I'm doing the reading, and we're going at a breakneck, breakneck pace, and keeping an eye on the clock, and keeping an eye on the next minion coming in, etc. And there isn't really time to explore how these words fit together, etc. Uh, we don't really get much of a chance to talk about how the sugya was edited, or how the sugya is formatted, which is critical to be, a, be really being able to study. The second piece, which is almost on the opposite extreme of the avenues of research, is to get into the conceptual uh, analysis of the sugya and to try to, to figure out what the underlying thinking is behind the halacha or behind different sides of a machloket. So that's the goal of the dive. So for Brera, we really had a choice. Sorry for the pun. But that was uh, because we I made it a two-parter. So we last week we focused more on the methodology of reading. We're going to go back to a little bit of that today on a deeper level. And today we'll do a little bit more of the issue of concept. So what I did is, I took the sources that we had from last week, but cut down to the bare bones just to get us back into the sugya. And if you remember, the end of the first Mishnah of the third parak was the fourth case of the Yater Mikain. Amar la lavlark, tov ezo agaresh, garesh bo. So again, the case is a guy has two wives, both named Susie. They're Susie Q and Susie not Q. And uh, he says, write the get for Susie. And tonight I'll decide which one I give it. I want to give it to. And we say that's pasul. And the Gemara essentially created a, a structural analysis of the Mishnah of each case being uh, less obvious than the one that, fo that it follows to say that even this is pasul. And after the third case, we got to the point that the get has to be written for that man and for that woman. And so you would really think that this last case should work because it was written for that woman either that woman A or that woman B, but it wasn't written for B and then he used it for A, it was written for unspecified. And so the Gemara then concluded, what's the what's the thinking behind the last case? The answer is, In words, the last case teaches the principle that which means that just on a simple read, when the guy says, here's something I need to determine now, leave it open-ended, and later on I will retroactively determine what I meant, doesn't work. Now, to see why it doesn't work, so we have to get to. Now, as I pointed out last week, we saw that the Talmud Yerushalmi had a different interpretation of several of the clauses, but for our purposes, and the part that I highlighted, was the reason that the last clause didn't work, meaning the last clause was what it was, that even if he says, write it for Susie, and I'll decide which Susie to give it to, it doesn't work. So the Bavli said, Ein Brera. The Yushalmi said, Ela Shalom 
Misha'a which as we will discover in today's in-depth look, in-depth dive, um, is really at odds, very likely, with what the Bavli meant, which means that the Rishalmi's position is that when you first wrote the get, it wasn't for that girl. And when you wrote the get, it was for a Susie. And then later on, you decided which Susie it was. But since it wasn't written for that particular Susie when you wrote it, therefore, it's not a valid get, which sounds like Bray Rob, but very likely isn't the same. And uh, at the end, again, we're going to see a little bit more about that mystery of that mysterious Yerushalmi, where it came from. Uh, but in the meantime, if you recall, and this, we're doing this just as a review from last week, if you recall, there is a Mishnah in Demai, where if a person buys wine from Kutim, and we don't have any details in the Mishnah, um, that he may set up the separate, the tithing, essentially, in advance, and then drink from the wine as if it's already been separated, meaning, we didn't really talk about this last week, meaning you've got a barrel of wine, and instead of se separating out the first 2% and putting it aside for the coin, and then another 10% and put that aside for the levy, and then another 10% of what remains uh, and put that aside uh, for Maser Sheni, and then the rest is now Metukan. Instead, you have the whole thing, which is really Tevel, but you've said a few little things, which is, you know, I'm going to I'm going to identify which two lugim later on are my truma, etc. And then you can go ahead and drink it and then just make sure to leave uh, approximately uh, twenty one hundreds at the bottom and give them, give them out properly. That's the Mishnah. The Tosefta added in two things. It added, first of all, the context. The context was you bought the wine on Erev Shabbat and didn't take truma to Masrot. So in other words, even the permission that the Mishnah has to do this in advance, this um, sort of anticipated tithing only works when there's a need. You know, it's not a plan, but it's Shabbat. You want to be able to have wine. That's appropriate. And you can't take Shemot Masrot on Shabbat, so we allow it. The second thing, which is far more critical, is that we saw dissenting opinions. We found out that our Mishnah that allowed it was the opinion of Reb Meir, and Reb Meir's three great colleagues, Reb Yudor, Yosef, and Shimon, all disagreed and said, you may not do it. We then found out the back conversation that their concern was nothing to do with Breira. Their concern was a pragmatic one, which is we're concerned that the spigot may break. And after you've drunk the, drunk the wine, and before you've separated parts to give to the Kwanim and Levim, and Maser Sheni, it will all spill out, which means that retroactively you drink Tevel. And Reb Meir says, if it breaks, it breaks. I'm not going to raise that concern right now. And so their machloket is actually a conceptual machloket, but about a different concept than Brera. It's a concept of anticipation of interruption, if you will, or do I not have to be concerned about that? We then saw a Mishnah later on in Gitin, when a guy says, uh, you get, if I die, and we get retroactive. And the question is, what happened? What's her status in the meantime? And Rabbi Yehud is of the opinion, meaning that when later on he dies, then the get becomes retroactive. But in the meantime, we treat her as if the get doesn't exist, which seems to indicate that ain't Breira. And that just simply what happens is at the point the get that, that his death happens, then an hour later, an hour earlier, you know that uh, it it um, it kicks out. 
But, right? but, but in essence, Rabbi, that doesn't make a lot of sense because at that, point, at that point, at that point, she would be an almana. She wouldn't be a grusha. She'd be an almana. No, she would become a grusha because the way he wrote the get was, uh, if I, I mean, the the particulars in this case make uh, add an, another twist to it that may uh, may indeed make her an almana. But the broad case is that if a guy writes a get and he says this get is valid from now retroactively one hour before I die, then you may think that from this moment on, she is maybe divorced. And then at the point where he dies, we then go one hour back and say she was divorced as of that point, retroactively to the moment he gave the get, right? And it would be a valid get. She wouldn't be an amana, she'd be a grusha. And of course, he's probably doing this because, again, they have no kids, he's got a brother, Zishnok, doesn't want her to get have to deal with Chalitza with him. But Rabbi Huda says she's ancient, she's the whole of our, which by the way means that if he's a Kohen, she can continue to eat truma. So, so we don't raise the possibility here that that uh, that um, that he may die any minute, and therefore, right now, she is uh, she is um, uh, a divorcee and can't eat truma. And that was that for that particular piece of the opinion of Rabbi Huda that we saw in the Gemara. We then saw this Tosefta. Which is a man comes up to a girl and says, I'm going to have Kedushin with you. On condition, he's doing it through Bia, by the way, on condition that father is agreeable. This is again, you see why this is a case of Braira. Because I'm doing an act right now. The status of the act is dependent on some other factor, somebody's decision or some event. And that event or decision will retroactively determine what this act meant. So having relations with a girl could be just premarital one-night stand or could be Kedushin, depending if father later says, oh, I'm agreeable to the marriage or not. And so Rabbi Shimon Elazar says, in the name of Rabbi Shimon, um, that only if the father is agreeable, then it works, and if not, not, which means he seems to agree with Brera. This is the classic case of Brera. But again, and we're gonna, now that's all the background to get into our sugya, which we're now going to spend some time with, which is looking at these cases and determining whether these different chachamim accept the principle of Brera. This is all a setup for the big surprise at the end. So stay with me. All right. <laughs> now, in the sugya, we have we had our discussion about Brera in the in the Gemara, and then we went to this following position. Now remember, we have the four cases in our Mishnah. If a guy here overhears scribes practicing a writing exercise and then says oh that's my name that's my wife's name the get is invalid uh if a guy writes a get uh and then the guy changes his mind and another fellow comes up and says oh my name's your name my my wife's name is your wife's name they invite from you that also doesn't work if a guy has two wives with the same name and says write it for the first one and changes his mind to the second one doesn't work and then our last case okay now so ziri says none of these gitin have the power to render her a grusha, except for the last one. Now, what he means by that is, all four cases we've determined are not valid as gitin. Nonetheless, there is a status that we refer to as reach get, meaning something that's close to a get, close enough that it renders her a grusha l'chumra, meaning she's still married to her husband, and if she has relations with another guy, it's adultery, and she can eat shruma if he's a kohen, but if, let's say, he subsequently dies, she's now considered a grusha 
for the purposes of she can't marry Cohen. Zairi says the first three cases are so not a get. I don't have to say it any better. They're so far from being a get that she's not at all a grusha, and if her husband dies, she can marry a coin, except for the last one. Our Brera case, he says, that's too close. Rabbi Yochanan takes it further. He says, He says, none of them are gitin, meaning even the last case, which means Rabbi Yochanan holds as an absolutely firm position, ain Brera. So when a guy comes up to the sofa and says, I want you to write the get for Susie. Which Susie? I got two. Just write Susie. I'll figure out later which one. And then later on, you decide it's Susie, not Q. Of course, you'd never divorce Susie, Susie Q, right? And we say it's an invalid get. And Rabbi Yochan says, and if the husband dies, she can marry Cohen. It's such an invalid get, right? Now, that means Rabbi Yochan holds that absolutely ain't brera. As not as a question of, I'm not sure if there's brera, but rather I know for a fact in brera. And therefore, this get is nothing. And we say, the Az Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Yochanan is being consistent with his own reasoning. When father dies and he's got five sons and there's five different fields and the sons are living together on the five fields and then at some particular point, at Shloshim, after the year, whenever it is they decide, let's divide things up. How do we look at that division? Do we look at that division as being essentially father, when he died, channeled field A to Ruvain, field B to Shimon, etc.? Or do we say that the sons have now made their own division? And that's really a Bray issue. You see why? And so Ryochanan says that when the brothers divide the property, that's essentially a sale. With the very un unusual kind of consequence that every 50 years, it has to go back in the pot and, and be redivided. Because when you sell land in Eretz Israel, after 50 years, it goes back to the original owner. Now, this is complex and has its own problems because what happens three generations later when it's gone through three different divisions, who does it go back to? I get. But that's not our issue. Our issue here is that Rabbi Yochanan has this position that when brothers divide the property, that division is not called inheritance. Inheritance was the block of five fields to the five sons. The division among the five brothers of their land, as an example, is a new act. And it can't be retrofitted to father's death. And so you see that Rabbi Yochanan holds as a matter of law in Brera. And then the Gemara goes on. We're going to skip this part, but the Gemara goes on to say why Rabbi Yochanan had to say the same principle twice. Why do you have to say it about Get and about, and about Yerusha? And the answer was simply that uh, that we would think that in the case of um, of Get, he said it because Get, there's, there's, there's a law, Lishma, and Get is written for her name, etc. And on the other hand, if he only said it about the field, we would say, yeah, he holds Ein Brera, which is a Chumrah. It's a Chumrah that you're saying this is a sale and has to go back. But he might not say it Lakula and allow the girl to marry somebody else. And the answer is no. He even says that Lakula, he even says Ain Brera as a leniency. Okay, so now that brings us to this, which looks like a cul de sac with no way out. Meaning, it, you'll see what I mean. So here we are on Pumbadita, and Ravashai turns to his Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, Amar la lavlar, ketov la ezer shetetzeva petach tchila mahu. 
So he says, I want you to write again for Susie, and whichever Susie comes out of the door first, that's the one who it is. Which, if you think about it, sounds almost exactly like our Mishnah, with one critical difference. In our Mishnah, he said, write it for Susie, and I'll later determine Susie Q or Susie not Q. Here, he says, write it for Susie, and I'm going to leave it open, and whichever Susie comes out first, that'll be it. Shades of Yiftach. So he says, is it valid? So Rav Yudu turns to him and says, I don't get the question. That's a Mishnah. And he quotes our Mishnah. Right? And so then, evidently, Rav Hoshaya challenged him, and I, I skipped this, but if you remember, there was the whole discussion about the father who says, the Korban Pesach will be shakted on behalf of whichever son makes it into Yerushalayim first. And he said, whichever son's body enters the walls of Yerushalayim first, he's the one who's Zocheh, and it sounds like absolute Brerah. That means I'm saying one of my sons will have this merit. And then later on, one of the sons comes in and retroactively, he's the one who got the merit. And then we, we discarded that because we said that's not really a Brera issue because all the sons are included. That's just a gold star issue. It's not relevant. So Abaye was bothered by this whole conversation. And that's getting us into the, into the kishkas of this. Look at the story, at the question right above this, which is why I, I elided the Pesach case. In the story, in the in the question that Rav Shaya asked, he says, "What if, uh, what if the husband says, write the get for Susie, and whichever Susie comes out first will be the one I divorce, which means tole bedata chirim." Now this is. Uh, an essential issue in Brera. He's saying, I'm leaving open the possibilities, and something external to me will determine what they are. Now, you understand what that means? It means I'm saying, I'm going to divorce Susie. Which Susie? Whichever Susie is late for dinner. Whichever Susie, uh, you know, doesn't have makeup on that. It doesn't matter what. He's making the decision dependent on something outside of himself. We call that tole bedat acherim, and then Abayi says v'kapashi le tole bedat And then what did Rabbi Yehuda answer? Rabbi Yehuda said it's a Mishnah, but the, our Mishnah is not tole bedat acherim. What is our Mishnah? Write Susie, and later on I'll decide with Susie to divorce. Now, which of those do you think? Before we go any further, <laughs> likely for Breira to work, Yesh Breira. Or Ein Breira, which is more likely? When the ultimate determinant is the person himself or something outside of him, which is, by the way, somebody else's decision or an event outside of his control, the weather. Himself, because he's choosing. What? Himself, because he's choosing. So you're saying when he himself, it says, I'm going to later determine, you're saying there's more likely to have Reish Breira, right? Okay, so everybody hear what Alan's saying. Alan's saying that that we're more likely to confirm Brera when you've left the Brera up to yourself. You're saying, I'm not sure if I want it to be Susie A or Susie B. I'm done with Susie Q. Susie A and Susie B. So I'm going to write Susie, and later on I'll determine which Susie I wanted. It's more likely for that to work than to say, write Susie, and whichever Susie comes out, it'll be it. Because you've made it much less about your own decision, right? 
Okay, you'll see that Rashi seems to go in the opposite direction. But I like what you're saying. And now Abaye is further bothered because Vahadar Motivle told Abedata Khirim. And now the, the 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 comeback was from the story of Pesach, which was about somebody else's determination. The father saying, whichever son gets there first, which means which means that Abaye says, I don't like this conversation. Because the question posed was about a case where an external event is going to determine what I meant. The response to it was based on a case where I'm going to be the one to determine it later. And then the challenge was, again, from an external determinant, whichever son gets there first. So Abaye doesn't like the conversation. Rava comes along to say, I like the conversation. Umama Rava, my kushya. Rava says, perhaps anybody who accepts the principle of Brera doesn't distinguish between that Brera being yours or external, and whoever does not like the principle of Brera doesn't distinguish between it being yours or external. It's all the same. Right, so that means that now, what the way Rav is trying to make this conversation from two generations earlier make sense, and especially Rav Yehuda, who is the Rosh Hashiva, for Rav Yehuda's response to be reasonable, so so um, so Rav is suggesting that whoever accepts the principle of Brera doesn't dis distinguish between what makes that Brera you or somebody else, and if you reject Brera, same thing. So Rav Mesharshaya challenges Rava on this. Here we go. I'm the Rav Mesharshaya, the Rava. I will show you somebody who does distinguish about Brera. Vaha Rabbi Yehuda, our Rabbi Yehuda, not Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda, the Toleb Adat Atzmo Leit Le Brera, the Toleb Adat Acherim Eat Le Brera. Now, by the way, Alan, this goes in the opposite direction. This says, he says, Rabbi Yehuda, who takes the position, that when you make it on your own choice, Brera doesn't work. But when you make it dependent on something external, Brera does work. How do we know that? you got to back that up. So, And they quote the Mishnah about the wine. The wine is about your own intent. Which wine I'm going to leave over? And Rabbi Yudah says you're not allowed to do it. And we think Rabbi Yudah says you're not allowed to do it because I don't accept Brera. And Toleb remember we saw the Mishnah, what's the status of the woman after the guy gave her the get that's going to retroactively kick back? What does Rabbi Yudah say? She's still married. Meaning only when he dies is it a get. In the meantime, she's fully married, which means I accept Brera. And that means only when he dies do we then turn into a get. Which means when it's something that I'm going to make the choice about, Brera doesn't work. And when the choice is dependent on something else, like death, which is out of our control, then Brera, um, Brera does work. Okay? And then Rabbi Shoshai does the same thing with Rabbi Shimon. He says, Rabbi Shimon says, um, same proof, because Rabbi Shimon is one of the Chachamim who doesn't accept the wine solution. And he has Brera, because remember what Rabbi Shimon says, if a guy says, let's have relations, and the relations are Kiddushin if your father later on consents. And Rabbi Shimon says, if the father consents, fine. If not, not. Which means 
Brera dependent on other people's intent, the father. So Rabbi Shoshai turns to Rabbi and says, your notion that whoever accepts Brera runs it like a bull in a china shop and doesn't distinguish between and somebody who doesn't like Brera doesn't like it in any case, isn't true. Because I'll show you two great rabbis, Rabbi Yudah and Rabbi Shema, who hold that Brera doesn't work when you leave it up to yourself. Let's see why. But Brera does work when you leave it up to an external event. So Rava turns to him and says, you're totally wrong about everything here. Because you're premising it on saying that Rabbi Yudah and Rabbi Shema hold that Brera doesn't work because of the wine case. But remember what we actually read about the wine case? Why did Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon say the wine case doesn't work? Not because of Brera, but because the, the speaker might break. So in other words, that's nothing to do with Brera. Which means, by the way, we can now comfortably say that Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon hold Yesh Brera. So where are they going to be in our Mishnah now? Where are they going to be in the case where the guy writes to get for Susie? And later decides which Susie it's going to be. It's going to be a little bit difficult. Right? Now, um, um, now, I want to take you to the next piece, because the next piece, our Sugya, by the way, our Sugya Brera is, is based in Gitin. Anybody who says, I'm studying the Sugya Brera, says, oh, you're studying Gitin, I get it. But, the Sugev Brera shows up in a lot of places. It shows up, in the beginning, believe it or not, at the beginning of Zvachim, as an example. And I'll show it to you because there's a statement of Rashi here that really gives us a sense of the concept behind Brera and what it's about. The Mishnah at the beginning of Zvachim, you may remember this from five years ago or so, the Mishnah at the beginning of Zvachim says, any korban that was shechted shaloli shmo, is kasher, but it doesn't count for the owners except for chatat and pesach, right? What does that mean? It was shechted shalolishmo. It means you have an ola and you say, I'm shechting this as a chatat. I'm shechting this as a shlamim. Right? Take chatat out. I'm shechting this as a shlamim. That's called shalolishmo. The Gemara assumes that that means that if you shecht it and say nothing, that it's valid. Meaning the default is good. And only if you actively uproot the, def the, the the meaning to the wrong meaning, then it's no good. And there's a story here where, where one of the Chachamim says, ooh, you should have been there in the Beit Midrash last night. It was so cool. The Chacham brought a challenge from Zvachim to Gitin, from Gitin to Zvachim, and he gave a brilliant answer, and, well, you missed it. All right? And what was the, the principle? He said that Stam Zvachin Lishman... Meaning, a korban shechted without stated intent, we assume the proper intent. And stam get pasul. If you write a get without stating which Susie it is, it's pasul. And the Gemara then goes through and says, how do I know that a stam get pasul? By stam here we mean it's got the right name on it, but the guy didn't state which Susie it is. And so they go through our Mishnah, look at it. How do we know that Stam get Pasul? So that's our Mishnah. And they said, maybe not. Maybe that's talking about scribes practicing. Okay. So in the second case, which is Chaim writes it for Susie and changes his mind. And another Chaim comes and says, I got a wife, Susie. I want to divorce her. He can't use it. 
So that's different because there it wasn't stum. It was it was specifically for Chaim A. So it must be the third case. The guy has Chaim has Susie A and Susie B. He says write it for Susie A, changes his mind for Susie B, doesn't work. That's also different because in that case, he already committed it to Susie A. It's not stam. Stam means no identity. So they say it must be the last case, which is write it for Susie. I'll later determine which it is. And they say that's different because ain't brera. You understand the difference? With a korban, we're saying the default is you're doing the korban correctly. And unless you open your mouth and say the wrong thing, you're doing it correctly. However, here, you're writing a get. And so therefore, which Susie is it? That's really Shema. Saying, I'm going to leave it as an open Susie. That's the problem of Bray Rai. Now, watch what Rashi says here. And this is the beginning of this level of the of, 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 of research. The Ain Bray Rashi says, Ugriya Mistama. Ain Bray makes it worse than Stam. Stam means that there is a default assumption about what you're doing. And unless you state differently, that's what it means. Let me give you a, a, a simple example of this. A guy stands up in front of 200 people with a little horn in his hand taken from the head of a ram. Happens to be the first day of the seventh month. And he gets up there and he uh, makes a couple of brachot. And everybody says, I ain't. And then he makes a bunch of noises. Right? Um, have they all fulfilled the mitzvah that way? The answer is yes. Why? Even if he doesn't say, I'm doing this to be motziyu. Or he says, I'm not doing, I'm doing this to shame mitzvah. Why? Anybody want to suggest why that would be the case? That if a guy stands up there with a shofar in Rosh Hashanah and blows the shofar and does not state, I'm doing this to be motzi, everybody. There's no intent required. What? There's no intent required. There is intent required, but... Well, the bracha... The assumption is the intent. In other words, the guy's getting up there in front of everybody. What do you think, what do you think he's doing? He would have to get up and say, I'm about to perform uh, Torelli's concerto for trumpet in C in order to mess it up. He'd have to uproot the default. The default is the shame shofar. But with get, it doesn't work that way. So now watch what Rashi says. Ugriya mistama. That, that the, the Brera issue is worse than a stam. Why? The shaman. Here we go. Here's the heart and soul of Brera according to Rashi. When here's what Rashi says the problem of Brera is, and it's far reaching. He says, When the husband said to the sofer, write it for Susie, even though he said, I'll decide later which one it is, he may have really had Susie A in mind. And therefore, when he gives it to Susie B, it really didn't belong to Susie B. It's really almost a subset of the third case. That's Rashi. And Rashi says the same thing elsewhere. I'll show it to you here. In Psachim. In a case which doesn't explicitly mention Brera in the Gemara. But Brera is all over the place. Right? A guy says, we'll take a look at the Mishnah first, right? A guy says to his servant, go get me a Pesach. Go shech the Pesach for me. So if they, now remember, Pesach, and here we go, here's Brera. What animal do you shech? What's the animal of a Korban Pesach? 
Lamb or goat? Lamb or goat. So now, if the guy shechts a goat, fine. If the guy shechts a lamb, fine. If he shechted a lamb and a goat because he wasn't sure what his master wanted, then the master eats from the first one he shechted. All right? And then it goes on. If he forgot, if his master actually told him which kind, he doesn't remember what she said, it goes on to details. Now, the Gemara then says the following. It says, Pshita, it's clear, Shachak di Yochal. Even though the master usually has a lamb, if the if he if the Evid shachted a goat, it's still the that's still it. And the same thing opposite. But here's the problem. You may not join two two Pesach groups, and you can't have two korban or Pesach. Each Jewish person has. No less and no more than one korban pesach. So he says, "Matnitin b'melech umalka." He says, "Great." The Mishnah is talking about the king and queen. What's that talking about? They're talking about, by the way, about Alexander Yane and Salome, who we call Shlom Sion. Right, and we'll see how it plays out. Vatanya ein nimnin al shnei pesachim keachad umaaseh b'melech umalka shamru l'avdem tzu v'shachtu aleinu tapesach. So Alexander Yane told his servants, "Go shach the pesach for us." They went and did two, meaning one goat, one lamb. This guy's a smart husband. They came and asked Alexander Yana, which one do you want? He said, go ask my wife. So she's a smart lady. She says, go ask Rabbi Gamliel. Makes it not, uh, this is not Alexander and Shlomzion, this is much later, Agrippus perhaps. They, they're easy. Now, Datan Kalayalan seems to be that they're easily um, appeased. So, whatever one was first is first. Now, the whole point of this, and I want to bring you to, is the Rashi. Rashi on the bright that says you cannot be part of two Pesachim as one, meaning you, you got to choose which Pesach you're with and which group you're with. He says, Rashi connects this to the Brera problem. Meaning, if I say, go ahead and shech, and whichever one you determine, that'll be the one I want, it doesn't work. Here we go again. Maybe at the moment of Shita, he really thought himself as part of the other group. So you understand that Rashi continually reads Brayrad's an issue of we're concerned that maybe he was really thinking about choice two. And when he ends up making choice one, that's not reflecting what he originally meant. He's changing his mind. All right? And so in the next line, the king and queen rely on their servants. And they don't care if they eat goats or lambs. They're easy going. Rashi, by the way, is more generous than the simple read of the Gemara. Hilkach ein kandin brera. You see what Rashi says? Not that it's not, there's no rule of brera here, because what's brera? Brera is when we have somebody who very likely actually meant one of them. And now, when it turns out to be the other one, he says, okay, that's fine. But in reality, he may actually have switched, and he may be switching from what he intended at the time of the action to now. And therefore, with the king and queen who really don't care, and they used to having goats and lambs, and they really are easy going about it, therefore, there's no rule of Brera. Now, 
what I'm, I'm trying to demonstrate to you is two things. First of all, you see Rashi's thinking about what the what the deficiency of Brerai is. It's not that we can't have retroactive designation. It may be that it's a false designation. And the second thing is you see how far reaching the rule of Brerai is. So now I'm going to show you two more cases where Brerai shows up. Uh, major Sugyota Brerai in Shas. Um, the first is Eruvin. It's a Mishnah and Eruvin. Now, Remember how Eruv Tchumin works. Eruv Tchumin means that the, the city that I live in and for 2,000 amount outside the city is my area that I can walk. Right? If I want to walk to a neighboring town that's outside of the Tchum, but which is within a Venn diagram Tchum, I can put an Eruv Tchumin between the cities. My 2,000 amount now stretch, 2,000 amount in each direction from the Eruv Tchumin. So if they... 2,000 amot, we hope, makes it into my town, and then makes it into the other town, I can go there, all right? What happens if I've got two towns on, on opposite sides of me, and each one of them has an attractive event happening on Shabbat that may or may not happen? A brit milah, chacham, shabbat something like that, some tzorach mitzvah. So the Mishnah says, Omer. A guy can set up an Eruv in two different places and say, make a condition and say, this is on the Crusades, and the Goyim are coming and chasing. If the Goyim come from the west, the east, then my Eruv is in the west side. Meaning on Shabbat day, suddenly there's a need to run away. I'm going to now retroactively designate the Eruv I set up on Friday as being in that direction and the opposite. And then in the opposite kind of direction. Right? I heard that the great Rosh Hashim is coming to one of my neighboring towns. If I find out that he came to that town, that's my Eruv. Obviously, now we're not running in the opposite direction. And now what happens? Let's say that Chachamim come to each city. Then I can decide at that point where I want to go. Let's say nobody shows up. It was all a false alarm. I'm ignoring my Eruv totally. All right? Now, The Gemara in Erevin, in the third parak, says this entire notion of being able to determine which of your Erevin is your real Eruv after the fact, Brera, is a machloket tanaim. Here we go. This is really good. All right, let's say that you live, I'm, this happened for us. I grew up in, in North Hollywood, and in those days, North Hollywood didn't have a whole lot going for it. And there was often something bigger, Shabbatons like that, going on in the city. We were crazy. We'd walk over the, over the hills. In those days, some people claimed, I don't think it was true, some people claimed that there was a Tchum issue because a lot of the, of the canyons was not inhabited. I don't think it's accurate, but let's say that it was. So he said, I could set up an Eruv in the middle for all year. And then each Shabbat say, I'll use it or I won't use it. Right? Ratzami bod yom Eruv Eruv. So if on for a particular Friday I say, ooh, the, the Shabbaton in town, I'm using the Eruv. And if a particular, another particular Friday I say, I'm tired, not an Eruv. But I can't make that decision Friday night. You understand why? Friday night's too late. And Rabbi Shimon, you say, Rabbi Shimon says it even works at night. Chacham says it doesn't work at night. All right? And now watch what the Gemara says. How can Rabbi Shimon say it works? We know that Rabbi Shimon rejects Brera. 
And then we go through the whole piece with the wine. That wine case keeps coming back to us, right? And and uh, the Gemara then raises a new possibility, which is going to take us to the end of the, the frontal part of this year. It says, my kushia. What's the problem? Dilma ki late. Remember before we distinguished in Brera between depending on somebody else's determination and, and fixing it on your own? Here's another split. Dilma Maybe Rabbi Shimon says we we say ain brayra when the case is a doraita case. But when it's a Durabanan case, like a roof tchumin, according to everybody except Rabbi Akiva, maybe brayra works. Now that would mean that brayra is something we're not sure about. Sorry for the pun, but that's what it is. We're not sure if brayra works. So therefore, in a doraita case, will be machmer and say it doesn't work, and a Durabanan case will be lenient and say it does work. So the reason Rav Yosef took this position was It sounds exactly like what, what Rav said earlier about He says, Rav Yosef must think whoever holds from Brera says Brera works in any case or if you don't like Brera, it never works. And Rabbanan is not a meaningful is not a meaningful uh, split. So we're going to see one last thing and we're going to see how this all comes to Halakha. What does Brera have to do with Yom Tov? Okay, so remember, Tchum applies on Yom Tov also. So it's going to come again to a Tchum thing. But this is really cool. When you get to the last paragraph of Beit Sa, um, you have the following issue. If I lend you a pot for Yom Tov, the pot has my Tchum, not yours. If I lend you my animal for Yom Tov, the animal has my tchum, not yours. All right? So now, um, If you borrow kelim, then it has, takes on the identity of the borrower. All right? That Now, and that's if you borrowed it on Erev Yom Tov. Because there was sufficient time before Yom Tov started for it to become yours and take on your identity. But if you borrowed it from Manyantif, which you can do, it still has the identity of the owner. All right? Now, watch this. So a woman has her own pot, and she goes to her friend Anyantif and says, can I have some spices to cook? Or some salt, etc., to make dough. They take on the identity of both of them, which means... That they have to have Venn diagram and only in places that both of them can walk can this thing go. Because the water and the dough are all mixed up together. The pot and the spices are all mixed up together. Okay. Um, last Mishnah that again seems to go far afield. And we're going to go really far afield on this one, but to see how impactful Brera as a concept uh, uh, plays out. Uh, Tumat Mate. It's coming up next week, Parshat Chukat in Israel. It's already this week. Let's say there's a dead person in the house, in a room. And there's many doors, points of access to the room. Every doorway has tumat mate. But well, these doorways are closed. Once they open one door, that doorway becomes tameh and all the other ones are tahor. You know why? Because when they open up one door, that's where the mate's going to go out. 
Now, here we go. Let's say he decided, I'm going to take him out through one door. Or a big enough window. I, I didn't open anything yet. I just decided, I'm going to remember, in Tumavatara, in, in intent is very is critical. I intend to take him out through that door or through that big window. All the other doors and windows are now tahor. It's so abtachin. He said, you better make that determination before the guy dies. Because after the guy dies, it's too late. Betel says, even after he dies. You understand how this is a Brera case? Because you're determining which door you're going to use. And, you, and, and now you're going to say, retroactively, when he died, we always intended to go out that door. Which means there's no Tumat mate elsewhere. All right, so this is the last sugya that we're going to see. Um, my Havela, what's the final conclusion about this whole thing with the salt and the spices and everything else? Rabbi Yochai Omar, yesh brera. Rabbi Yochai Omar, ain brera. Rabbi Yochai yesh brera. How could you say yesh brera? We have the whole Mishnah that we just saw about Tumat Meit. V'it marlam Rabbi Yochai letayar taptachim ikan And Rabbi Yochai said the only things that become tahor are from here on in, but not retroactively. Meaning, Rabbi, Rabbi Yishai clearly says, Ain you can't retroactively, you can't retrofit your intent. And so our answer is, Epuch. Okay, so we have to flip it. Remember, with oral transmissions, sometimes we get the positions flipped. Right? So we know Rabbi Yishai and Rabbi Yochanan disagreed. One said, one said not. And so it must be Rabbi Yochanan said Yesh Breira. But how could we say Rabbi Yochanan said Yesh Breira? Remember what Rabbi Yochanan said about the brothers who divide the estate? Ain Breira. All right. So the answer that we give is that he, Rabbi Yochanan holds Ain Breira bid the Oraita, and in the Rabbanan, uh, Breira works. And the final line of this is, um, and we said that, that, um, that in the, the case of the Eruvin, whether Chacham is going to come to this city or not, Rabbi Yochanan said, meaning you can only determine the Eruv before Shabbat starts, because he holds Ein Brera. Which means Rabbi Yochanan says Ein Brera, Rabbi says Yesh Brera, but Rabbi Yoshaya says the doors of the house, Ein Brera. So which is it? So you'll see it in bold. Meaning, bottom line, end of this whole thing is, Rabbi Shaya says that um, in a Doraita, in a Drabanan, he says there's. Therefore, with the with the Tchumin, uh, which is Drabanan, it all works. And Rabbi Yochan agrees. Darsh Marzutra halachak Rabbi Shaya. Sorry, and Rabbi Yochan disagrees, but Marzutra said the halacha is like Rabbi Shaya. And if you Take a look in these two Rambams. You'll see it quite explicitly. And this is the case of an Eruv. Very explicitly. Which means, bottom line, where we end up is that in cases that involve Torah law, we say in Brera. And we could we can explore it from Rashi's perspective, which is, we have to raise the concern that maybe at the original moment you really intended the other one, and therefore you're not really retroactively determining, you're switching your mind. With the Drabanan, we'll be more lenient. We won't raise that, that concern. The other possibility is to say that the entire notion of Brera is problematic. 
And we'll say, therefore, in a case that's Doraita, we're going to lean into the severity and say we're concerned that Brera may not work. It may be that in order to make a decision, the decision has to be made up front. And you can't post facto determine what you meant. In a case that's Drabanan, because the entire prohibition is Drabanan, we'll be lenient about it and let it go. We don't need to, to use Rashi to make that work. So the last thing I want to show you, and then, as I said, open up for questions, is remember we spoke about the Yerushalmi last week. Here's the Yerushalmi, just to show you. This is what it looks like in our Yerushalmi, uh, where the one time that Brera shows up in the entire Yerushalmi, and that is uh, that Rabbi Yehuda says that they would not have separate boxes for the kinim, for, to put donations in for birds, you know, as the Nikdash. And the Gemara then says, so it says, why don't they just, uh, you know, take any, because they're concerned that it's getting mixed up with improper coins. They want to take a few coins out, throw them out, and then say those are the, those are the uh, the bad ones. We all know Rabbi holds Ein Brera. Now, again, the reason this is difficult is because nowhere else in Yerushalmi, at all the places you would expect a job, Eruvin, Beitzah, Gitin, Psachim, in none of these places is Brera ever invoked. And it shows up punctir. And as I showed you last week, in the manuscript of the Yerushalmi, it's actually a side note, a margin note. You can see it here, you can see it here. And even in the famous Munich manuscript, it's a side note, a margin note. It's not part of the text. It somehow made it into the text. Well, let me show you something now, and you'll see where it came from. And again, through all the centuries of study of the Yerushalmi, which was generally sporadic, the Yerushalmi, understanding of the Yerushalmi was very heavily shadowed by a perception of the Bavli. And the Yerushalmi was often interpreted that way. If you look at the classic commentators on the Yerushalmi, they interpret it in Bavli lines, because that's what we're, we're all trained with. Take a look at this is a Gemara Yoma, Bavli, right? And it tells a story. Um, it says, what happens if a guy sends a chatat from, remember, this is our Mishnah that we just dealt with, Chazkat Chaim. The guy sends a Korban Chatat from Spain. We can continue to bring it, even though, you know, we don't know he's alive, because we assume he's alive. And they said, Why don't don't we just take any four Zuzim, throw them out, and let the rest be okay, and say that the general fund here is all of proper Chatat money. And the answer is, and I'm not going to go the details here, Rabbi Yehuda, late, late, bray, ra. Now, if you look at it, this is almost exactly the same wording as shows up in Yerushalmi, which means what happened is that the whoever is writing the margin note copied this sugya from Yoma and put it as a margin note and saying, in the Bavli, we happen to have this observation about Brera, not in Yerushalmi. And somehow it made it in as these things happen and and got into uh, into our Yerushalmi. Um, I keep saying one last thing. Um, and I'm not going to say anymore because not not uh, uh, not going to work um, because I, I there was one other thing I wanted to show you here about uh, about the way that the text works, but uh, I, I did promise I was going to leave it open for questions. So at this point, I just want to quickly summarize what we looked at today. I talked about the purposes of the dive in general, and we want to look about how we read the text, and we did some work on how to properly read the text and understand it and a little bit about the conceptual analysis of the principle of Breira. Um, the 
actually do want to show this to you as a final piece is one of the points that I made about reading the text is that in reading the text, and we've talked about this constantly from day one, is we have to realize we're not looking, looking at a composed text. We're looking at an anthology. Anthology is not the right word because what we have is layers upon layers of discussion with no clear markers whatsoever telling us what layer each set, each phrase or each sentence is from. And to successfully navigate our way through the suya, it's important to be able to distinguish those layers. Now, that's something that we do automatically because we quote a pasuk, and we know the pasuk's not from the Gemara, and so we read the part of the pasuk. We'll read a quote from a Mishnah, and we'll look it up to see where the Mishnah ends or recognize when the Hebrew's done, it goes to Aramaic, that's the end of the Mishnah, or Bright will recognize that that's from an earlier era. What's a little more difficult is when we're reading just the Gemara itself, we don't realize that often there will be connecting phrases that are put in much, much later. And um, a teacher of mine, Professor Leib Moskowitz, suggested in his book on Talmudic Reasoning that in this particular sugya, perhaps we should read, and he's suggesting it as a perhaps, perhaps we should read the whole concept of Brera as a very late addition uh, post-Amoraic addition, what we would call stomach addition into the text. And I tried it out, and it actually works quite well. What I did here is I took um, the issue of Brera, made it smaller and highlighted it, and saw, can you read the text without it? And it could be that Rava said, my kushya, lo And Rabbi Shashaya says, Rabbi Huda and he quotes that, and every mention of Brera may have been a later addition. The reason that's critical is because we need to recognize that the notion of conceptual analysis and the notion of nomenclature of concepts is something that develops late in Bavel. And so many of the concepts that we have, which we retrofit into the Mishnah, are not necessarily in the Mishnah. And we saw a great example of that in our sugya when we tried to fit Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Yossi about the wine into Brera, and in the end, it wasn't about Brera at all. Brera just fell off the table. And so what we, what an important piece to do whenever we're studying any Gemara is to take a look at it and say, okay, Amar Rava blank, how much of the rest of this is Rava's statement? How much of it is later editors adding in pieces to help us understand what Rava meant or to connect some dots? And that becomes critical for being able to analyze Rava correctly. And by the way, that's something that the Rishonim all did. Rashi consistently will say, Lo Right? This is not what the, the Rabbi said, it's what the Gemara said, meaning the later Chachamim. Rashi, all the Rishonim will point that out, because they understood that when you're looking at the Gemara, that's what you have to see. Okay, I kept promising, but now I'm going to bring it to a close, and give me one second, and we will... Um, open it up for questions. And Mitzvah Hashem next week will have our regular time at six o'clock, and we will um, we will go into uh, the Suyot of Tikkun Olam. How fun is that?